Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Because it's time. It's it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card. I'm your host, Ahmed Yusuf. And joining me in studio today, we've got Amina Ziad. Hey. Uh, before we'll be doing an acknowledgement of country, uh, we acknowledge the Korn people as the owners of the land in which we meet, and we pay our respects to their elders both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the process of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we talk politics, current affairs, and public culture with a little bit of a twist. Joining us in studio, as I said before, is Ruby Hamad, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but today we'll be looking at how the Solon generation never ended with Indigenous ex-founder Luke L. Pearson, um, talking about Rebel Wilson's BAFTA speech, and that'll kind of make you gag. Uh, and our feature discussion is on white supremacy and decolonizing body and movement. Um, and now uh, we'll be, I'd like to introduce you, Ruby. Ruby, you're, you're a writer and columnist for The Daily Life. Um, you're one of the prominent voices right now. Oh, you're blushing a bit, but like, <laughs> it's, it's true. You're one of the prominent voices right now when talking about race in, in Australia. Um, and I, I know you've, you've spoken a bit, maybe, maybe more online, about kind of the, the troubles you've had finding a voice in a very kind of white media landscape, especially talking about race, which is usually a touchy subject, especially in Australia. So how difficult has it been breaking through? Okay, yeah, it took it took me a while to, I guess, break in, and I feel like I'm still kind of breaking in. It's not... Um, I don't feel, I guess comfortable and like I've made it or anything like that I just keep doing what I'm doing but I didn't start off writing about race I'd started off writing more political and feminist issues which not to say that race isn't both of those things it is but I guess I didn't put an explicitly um, race sort of spin on it but I did notice, you know, a few years ago, um, that there there was a gap in our conversation about race. There were there, you know, there's, there's been some great um, writers working, excuse me, working um, longer than I have writing about issues, you know, uh, you know, uh, affecting people of color and, you know, Muslims in particular, because that's you know, it's my background. I felt like there there wasn't. I just felt like Australia was behind when it came to representation and to about the importance of pop culture and media and films, et cetera. And there's kind of this sense of, you know, the reputable left-wing publications we had didn't really get into that stuff because it's kind of seen a bit frivolous. 
But from what I was reading in, you know, what was happening in the US and in Europe, pop culture is where we see ourselves reflected and it, it drives our society and it reflects our society. And so if we could talk about, you know, whitewashing in films, which is a huge thing now, not so much, you know, five or six years ago, uh, things like uh, blackface and brownface, which is still going on no matter how many times we talk about it. It comes, comes gets to a point where you think they're just doing it on purpose now because they can't not know the critiques that so many people of colour have put about it. So I felt like there was there was definitely a gap and I tried, you know, I remember five years ago just trying to, to pitch things about blackface and about whitewashing and, and how important it was and no one really wanted to know. And even though other publications were publishing me on, on other things, I felt like there was only a limit to how many Muslim voices they would give. And because I'm a bit of an unconventional Muslim voice because I'm more secular and I don't approach, I don't approach it from a, a faith perspective as much, although I'll, you know, I'll defend, obviously, the right of Muslims to practice their faith. Um, I come from a more of a, a secular or not even, but just, just a, a race issue, the, 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 the way that race and faith intersects when it comes to Muslims. Um, and so, you know, Daily Life was the first place where I really published an explicit article on whitewashing um, in, in Hollywood and what that says about our society. The backlash was enormous. Like, people didn't want to know. And I was quite surprised because I wrote something that I thought was pretty un uncontroversial. It was about the film The Impossible, the, the, the uh, one the the tsunami, the Boxing Day tsunami and set in Thailand, but of course it was centred around a white family and everyone that was sort of affected by the tsunami in this film was all white. So obviously it was designed to sort of play into white emotions. But this was, this was you know, the story of, that happened in, in Asia, in Southeast Asia, and yet they were completely marginalised in this story. And, and, I, and people were talking about it in the New York Times and in The Guardian and then... I thought it was pretty uncontroversial. I'm like, well, we're not talking about it. We need to talk about it. But I just got this enormous backlash. People just did not want to hear that in Australia yet. Why, why do you think that um, you weren't able to get published? Why do you think there was this propensity to not want to talk about race in the way you and the way daily life talk about race? I and just think now. that it's probably seen as, as frivolous and not important. I still get, you know, I see comments written about me on, on Twitter and whatever. I'll oh, pop culture, who cares? You know, that sort of a thing. And, you know, it's not, I don't write it because I love these films. I don't write about whitewashing in the fashion industry because I'm a, you know, fashionista. I'm absolutely not. Like the, the fashion industry, you know, I can, you know, not, not one of my favourite things, but it's important because it's part of our culture, uh, you can't sort of deny it, it, it the way that it influences us and, and how, again, as I said, it reflects who we are. So when, when uh, the fashion industry puts blackface in their magazines or doesn't use black models even, you know, I remember once I wrote an article and I got really slammed on it by serious left writers on Twitter. I wrote an article about Fashion Week in Brazil and how they had, like, next to no models, but more than 50% of people in, in Brazil are black. How can a country where there's more than 50% black people not be complete, not represented at all in one of their major cultural events, whether or not we think it's a cultural event that's important or frivolous mm -hmm. or shallow, it's all those things, yes, 
but it's still a part of our, our society and well, it's important and needs to be talked about. What's even funny is because this week um, a black Brazilian model, or, or, or I think black Miss Miss Brazil, I think it was something to do with that, to that she had her title revoked from her. There was I some, hadn't heard that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was the reasoning? I didn't quite see the reasoning, okay. uh, but... A lot of it pointed to to race. Well, there you go. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. I think um, what happened was um, she was actually pulled her from her title because she was too black. And she was too yeah, black. Yeah, like she was just yes, too dark. Too black. And oh. so they replaced her with someone who was lighter skinned. Have you noticed That's how people are, are either too black or not black enough? Like, we've had two comments, one by Bill, Bill Clinton and... Uh, Meryl Streep talking about, well, no, we're, we're all, African. all Africans, we're all really. Africans. And it, it's like, it's, yeah, white supremacy yeah. is a and really think, funny thing. I think that's that's important because yeah. we can't win in white supremacy. No, it's, There's no it's winning. stacked. It's yeah. stacked. Like, and, and that argument, oh, sorry if I'm going off on a tangent, but this whole thing of, well, we're all black, really, and we're all, that's what Bill Clinton said, we're all mixed race. And it's like, excuse me, you know, you're, you're a Meryl Streep, Bill Clinton, you're Americans. 200 years ago, being mixed race is not going to stop a black person from being sold into slavery, sold into slavery, and it would not have helped them during segregation either. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, the president, sold his own children that he had with a maid that he raped. Um, so this idea, well, we're all mixed No, you, that's something that white people use to their advantage when it suits them. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, w- w- what I want to talk about now is you talked about daily life and how mm-hmm. did I guess how did that happen? Because now you're one of the columnists. So. Yeah, I pitched an idea to them. I can't remember what it was. It may, it may have been about the Sex in the City film, the second one, which was awful. You know, the one where they go off to, to Dubai. India? Oh no, they Dubai, went to oh, in Dubai. Dubai or Abu Dhabi. It was one of the two, the Emirates. Um, and it was awful. And she just, you know, the editor said, "Look." I, you know, this 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 has just gotten so much press. We kind of want it to die, um, so we don't want this particular one. But we're very keen to have you write for us. So send me f- some more ideas. At that point, I'd been published in, you know, sometimes in the paper, in the Herald, in the um, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the Age here in Melbourne. I'd also been published in the Drum, ABC, and Eureka Street, the um, which is still one of my favourite places to write for. By the way, first place that ever published me, um, Eureka Street, which is a Melbourne publication put on by the or published by the Jesuits. Um, and so I, I've had some things out there, nothing regular, and yeah. So obviously, daily life. The editor had Sarah had been reading it and said pitch some more ideas and it started from there so I started off just as a contributor um, and then for the last year and a half now I've been a, a weekly columnist sometimes more than a week because uh, sometimes there are more racist things that happen in yeah, a week I mean I don't only write about yeah, race but that's I, what I want to talk yeah. to you about like because oftentimes when people of color start writing about race mm. whether it is a few articles here and there they get pigeonholed into yeah. that um, you only write about yeah. race issues. You don't write about politics. You don't write about um, elections or what have you. You just write about race. You know what's funny? Like whatever I write about, people will that dislike it will tell me you only write about this. So I mean, the other week I wrote about Israel. I wrote um, it was about appropriation and just linking appropriation, cultural appropriation here in Australia via the um, you know that meat and livestock ad for for um, lamb just linking it to cultural appropriation in um, in Israel. And 
you know, uh, someone on wrote about it in, 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 in some publication and said, Ruby Hammond has returned to her favourite pastime of writing overwrought attacks on Israel. It's like, I think I've written about Israel maybe four or five times in the six or seven years that I've been writing professionally. So this idea that it's, you know, whenever whenever they dislike what you do, they'll say you only do that. So I do write about race a lot more than I write about Israel. Um, but they will, yeah, they will say, well, that's all you care about is bringing down white people. When yeah. I write about feminism, same thing. Uh, just on that, so when people try to pigeonhole you and the kind of work that you do, the flip side is they don't actually want to have you on board because what they say is, what are you going to bring to the table? You yeah. know, what different what difference are you going to make? And what would you say to that? I mean, I think it's a funny thing. Like people will accuse me of being divisive. You don't, know, you know, this is this is an argument that people in privilege use all the time. No, you, we have you have to bring us together. What you're doing is separating us. What they're not taking into account is that we already feel separated. We feel marginalised, and we know that we're excluded. And so we're just bringing attention to it. We're not doing it to cause a deeper rift we are we know there's a rift and that unless we and when i say we i mean people of color unless we play along and accept this sort of inferior status that we have then we're expect then um then everything's okay and we're, we're tolerated but as soon as we identify this problem and say we want to fix it uh then 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 that becomes an issue uh, and so so when you, you ask that you mean when when like sort of white people or the mainstream culture says this to me um, both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just say, look, we, we, the fact that they can't see that problem is their privilege. They don't, they don't, I mean, they know what it, they know they can turn on the TV and they'll see themselves represented. We have the whitest television probably in the Western world. It's, it's, I mean, I've just come back from living in, in America for a year and America is no paradise. Like it's not the promised land, but you turn on the TV and they're in, you know, in public um, access television, not not just not just cable, but you turn on the, the television and people of all races are reflected. Well, I shouldn't say all, but there, there's a greater diversity, um, which we don't have here. Like it's you know, I've written articles about it where I put pictures of you know focusing on just morning television, comparing like TV Australian TV shows to to daytime television shows in the US, and the the difference is stark. Um, why do you why, like I, we we have this discussion almost all the time about like TV representation and why do you think there's still a reluct reluctance to it to have that? It takes time. We 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 feel like we've been having this conversation over and over, but in real terms, it's really only been the last few years that we've that people of color have said enough. Like we want to be on television. I remember a few years ago where there was a couple of of soap actors. Um, one of them, I think, was on Home and Away, and Faras Durrani, is that his name? Denari oh, or Durrani? Yeah, yeah. And know. they and they pointed he's, he out. Spoke, yeah, he yeah, spoke about this was years ago, and and they when they spoke out, they both but it's particularly and I can't remember his name. I apologise, I wasn't expecting I, to I, talk I know, about I know. this. Uh, he was and Elijah he, on Home and Away. Yes, I forget his real yeah, name. Yeah, I apologise if you're listening, <laughs> but yeah. um, and he. He didn't get work after that, so so he took such a big risk pointing out, and at that po at that point, people weren't really talking about it, and and now we are. But I guess the, it, it takes a long time because you have to think about why it's still happening. Who is in charge here? 
And the people that are still running the media and then the, the television uh, uh, studios yeah. or whatever, they're white men for the most part, maybe a couple of women, but they're white men. And so because, of, you know, they, they can't really see the problem. They can't or they say they can dismiss it because it, there's, there's no personal experience for them. But you've, you've kind of... Um, you've kind of seen the landscape, say, for example, because a lot of people, like, growing up, like, the younger generation, people, new writers emerging, yeah. um, are critical of a show much more, um, a kind of, like, saying, why can't we be like the US or the mm. UK? You've seen kind of the change, if you will, that's happened maybe the past five to seven years. Are you, are you seeing a change or is it just more of the same? I'm seeing like Australia is finally talking about it and identifying the problem. I mean, obviously, there is a bit of a change. You know, you've got um, Walid Ali, who's now, you know, on the project. So a few years ago, you wouldn't have seen, you know, a, a, a brown face, much less a brown Muslim face on such a mainstream show. And unfortunately, it does tend, what <laughs> does tend to happen, and this is where I talk about the intersection of of sexism and racism, when when these opportunities do come up for people of colour, it's almost always a man. So women of colour are still still kind of le- left lagging behind, unfortunately. But um, obviously there are some changes afoot, and I think we need more in in the panel shows, you know, the morning shows, the 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 soaps even though I don't watch them it just needs to reflect who we really are and young children of colour need to see themselves represented because we might think that pop culture doesn't matter but when you can't see yourself represented it's it's it, it, you know, it affects your self esteem and it affects your self worth and, and your standing in society, you become invisible and you feel it Oh, I just want to add to that, that sounds like lazy indoctrination. <laughs> it's like one of those things that can happen without much critique yeah. and white supremacy can go on. And speaking of representation, I was doing some research yesterday and Australia's population, like white population, makes up like 90%, probably more than 90%. I'm being a little bit vague here. I can't remember the exact. Is it 90? Was it? That's quite a lot. Yeah. I think it's it's more like, but this thing, it's different. What kind of white are you talking about? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? What's, you know, are Greek people white? Are Italians white? Well, Well, they they kind of are. They are. Well, they came in under white Australia policy, right? They were allowed in. So they are white. They are white. But they also suffered from racism and exclusion. Yeah. So it's but do they still like the, the question is like I guess the idea is race is always and this, it's because it's, it's a social structure. It's fluid. Yeah, it's fluid and yeah. it keeps on changing. The so change. so now Absolutely. Are, yeah. are they more are they are they more or less white? Yeah, and, I would you, argue yes, but yeah. I'm sure there are some that would probably. Yep. Uh, just to continue that point. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so with the representation of people of color on television, a lot of people tend to say things like oh, well, that's because there's just not much people of colour. But when you look at it proportionally in terms of its ratio, um, representation of people of colour in the media, or particularly in TV, is 0.08%. That's not even vaguely close. Uh, so it doesn't even to, add up statistically. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a very particular you know, process going on. That's a good one. I didn't yeah. thought of that. That's, that's a gonna, good statistic. Gonna, that's a very good statistic. You I might steal it for, for an article. Yeah. I will use that in the future. <laughs> oh, but do you know, like, because um, we, we kind of briefly talked about the pigeonholing kind of thing. Mm. Did, is, is that something that scares you? Because like, cause like sometimes you don't always want to write about race. Sometimes no, you and don't I don't always. I mean... 
I've written quite a few this year already, but for a while there was a long stretch last year where I didn't write anything. I'll I'll only write it if I feel like it needs to be said, I think, and I go that goes for anything. And, you know, for a while I was worried that I'd be pigeonholed as a Muslim writer, so I, I for a long time, didn't write anything about, um, about that uh, for, again, partly because I didn't feel like there was something that I could say. Again, I don't write from the perspective of someone who's practising, um, you know, the religion daily, and because I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not visibly Muslim, so my experience as a Muslim woman is a lot different to, to some others. So there are some issues that I would leave to the more sort of, I guess, visible Muslims who suffer a different kind of, of racism because they present as Muslim um, immediately. Um, so that that was a fear, but, you know, uh, I've, I feel like I'm starting to escape that fear a little bit. I've been asked to do things that are not necessarily just about race or just about, you know, I mean, I've, I'm, you know, I'll be at the All About Women Festival next month in, at the Opera House in Sydney and I'll be chairing a couple of panel discussions, um, neither of which are about race. Um, so as much as I love talking about race and I mean, you know, I've got something else coming up about race as well. I like to, you know, talk about because you other... know, because you have a fluid identity. Obviously, race yes. plays a huge of course part it does. of that. Yes, of course but it does. You, you, like, for example, you don't have, like, white writers can usually write about anything and it doesn't matter. That's yeah. a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. um, I just wanted to add to previous, um, yeah, the previous point. Um, one of the really good quotes that have been told to me, and I can't remember who it is, so I'm unfortunately I cannot credit it, but um, someone once said, to write before you written about... And I think that's very apt. And so when we say things like, I don't want to talk about it because it's you know not my experience, and, and yeah, rightfully so, how do you feel about, for example, white writers who can write about anything and write in anything authoritatively as if they do have you know, yeah. the capacity to do that? I think the way they write is important. I'm not, like, there are certain times when an issue comes up that I feel that only someone from that community can write about it Especially, you know, if they're writing about it in a in a personal way. So, um, I'm just I'm struggling to think of an example. Well, but like, especially if it's like an opinion piece. Like, if you're if you're doing like if someone's gone out and done some interviews and writing like a feature piece, I can yeah. kind of like like that's 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 okay. Yeah. But like, if you're writing an opinion piece in an authoritative tone, yeah. I'm yeah. saying like this is this and this is that. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, white people are allowed to have an opinion on race. That, so if a white person writes about, say, um, what's jumping out of me, the, you know, the Adam Good saga, they can write it in a certain way. You know, they can't write about the importance that his, you know, Adam Good's actions on the field and off the field had to the Indigenous community because they, they don't, they cannot possibly have the, the right they experience. Know. They can't know. Do you think it was hard, I guess, at those initial stages because there weren't that many people out there um, who, who were talking about race or were, were any kind of like misrepresentation in the media was very, very small. Yeah. Um, was it hard, like, continuing on even after those rejections? It was hard. But look, in those days, I wasn't as aware of racism as I am now. I just wasn't... I, was so, I also wasn't aware of sexism as much. I still... I kind of bought into this whole thing that the West kind of had these issues figured out I didn't really 
think about it at that, you know, when I first started writing, when even a person of colour cannot realise the extent of how racist our society is until we start delving deeper and reading it and then we start to piece together our experiences and you're like, okay, so why did I get rejected with all those CVs that I sent out, which were pretty good and I've got the skills and I've got the experience and then, you know, you read about a study that says if you have a an Arab-sounding surname, you have to submit, you know, what is it, like 68% more resumes, like almost twice as many just to get. So, because um, today actually I was listening to an, an interview uh, uh, from this this uh, this a- British Asian writer talking about racism in sport and they were talking about the Rooney Rule. Rooney Rule, I'm not sure if you heard of it. In yeah. um, the NFL, they have this rule where every single NFL club, when they're trying to hire a new coach they must interview one black coach. And uh, that, that's, the, that's a blanket rule they put in, I think, uh, a few years ago. Uh, I think 12 years ago, and then it's changed, and now you see, a more, um, you see more black coaches in the NFL. Do you think something like that, in a more kind of sense of creating a media diversity, needs to, to come into Australia? Yeah, like I'm all for affirmative action. Uh, I, you know, this whole idea that it unfairly advantages certain people. No, it's it's a measure against, you know, our white privilege. We just, the, the, the job always goes, nearly always goes to a white person by default or usually a white male by default. And in affirmative action and these th- sorts of quotas are meant to at least get people from marginalised groups are looking an opportunity because like especially like uh, so if we're talking about um say public broadcasting specifically we're talking about abc eight mm. percent of abc's uh content makers are um um eight percent of abc's content makers come from a non-english speaking 8%? background eight percent that is eight percent of so this is the the government this is the a public broadcasters public broadcaster who's you'd think would be looking to to match mainstream Australia. You know, you say this rule, this Rooney rule, has resulted in more black coaches. It, it just shows that they... Because the rule was they have to interview, Just right? interview, just interview. Of, no, yeah. no, no, no So the hiring. fact is they interviewed them and discovered, hey, these people have the skills yeah. and they've got the talent. So it's just they were overlooked before on account of their race. The fact that, that, that there was, a, there was a, a, a quota or whatever for interview just shows that this person was then seen when they would not have been seen. They would have previously been invisible. The exact same person with the exact skills to bring to the table. I would ju- yeah, exactly. I just want to make this clear. Every single person that was interviewed would have to have the requisite of course, skills and, and CV. That is the biggest fallacy or myth that I think goes around about programs like that or affirmative action the idea that you can just pluck anyone who's you know black or arab or or a woman off the street and they're just going to beat all the, all the white people that have the talent and the and the actual knowledge or or whatever it's not the case you're actually you you still have to be good at what you do oh definitely but yeah, also i so feel like Often you, you see people of, of colour not wanting to actually enter these roles because they don't see themselves reflected. Onus is on, on companies to actually invest in diversity. Because mm. um, I, I think I was reading another article from Media Diversified about like white writing rooms and all this kind of jazz. It's like more often than not, you're going to have something racist come up, or something sexist come up, something homophobic come up, something transphobic, something uh, deeply offensive if you do not... Um, actually invest in diversity what is worse paying that lawsuit or actually um trying to 
to see a more diverse. What's going on people? This is Akala and right now you're listening to the race card. Big up. Now we're going to our segment the week that was where we highlight the most notable and infamous stories from the past week. First up this week we're going to be talking about the winner of the most racist comment of the week award and it goes to Alan Jones, Mr. Alan Jones I should say, um, about his comments about the stolen generation. My open line number, Dale, hello. Once again, I agree with you when you said what was all that that went on before that match on... What was it? I I mean, what a load of twaddle, and they even (laughs) had to end with a minute's silence for the stolen generation. When are they going to believe that half the stolen generation were taken for their own protection? Mm, Correct. And I get... To look after them. And, and we, we need stolen generations. There are a whole heap of kids going before the courts now or their families, mums going before the courts and dads who are on top of the world with drugs or alcohol and suddenly they go back into an environment where children are brought up in those circumstances. Those children, for their own benefit, should be taken away. Absolutely. Yeah, Dale, we've gone mad, haven't we? Have we, we have. And we I have gone mad. I just thought it was unbelievable. Yeah, and, well... That was clearly rubbish and ahistorical about the history of the Solon generation. In the same week, um, Indigenous X uh, founder Luke Al Pearson wrote an article about the Solon generation, how it never really ended. Um, we're going to get Luke hopefully on the line right now. Hi, Luke. Thanks for coming on the show. In your article, you reference a few statistics um, uh, that tend to go unmentioned, and I'll just read a few off. Uh, in June 2007, 9,070 Indigenous children were in and out of home care. Uh, in June 2015, that number has risen to 15,455. And in 2007, 40, 45.3% of Indigenous children in home, in out of home care were placed with their own Indigenous families. Today, that number has reduced to 35.9%. More Indigenous children are being removed today than at any other time in Australian history. They are 10 times more likely to be in uh, in care than in their own uh, than non-Indigenous peers. Um, they represent only 5.5% of their age population and they make up 35% of the children out of home care. So why aren't we talking more about these statistics, Luke? But yeah, I should mention that uh, that bit that you just referenced from my article I actually quoted from Larissa Brent in her article in The Guardian. Um, so I, I borrowed those stats from that article. But a big part of the problem for me when the media usually looks about it and Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Larissa's was a shining example of what we should actually be talking about in the media. The story usually is just, are we at risk of a new stolen generation? A new report says we're at risk or someone's quoted as saying we're at risk of a new stolen generation. And that story comes out every three or four months and has done for about the last 12, 13 years. Um, I had a quick look when I was writing my article and the oldest news story I could find saying it goes back to 2004. And so every few months they do the same story again, mentioning that it's there and then it moves on. There's no real critical examination of what's actually happening, what's happening with the numbers and what's happening with the government response to it. 
And so a big part of the problem is that the media just doesn't seem to have any real interest in actually being a part of the conversation at a deeper level. They just put it on the radar and then move on again very quickly. But when we actually look at government responses, when we look at what can we actually do to reduce these numbers? Now, you know, no one's arguing, oh, well, God, unfortunately, there are people who are arguing that the numbers should be higher, which is just mind-boggling on so many levels that anyone would argue that the best place for a child is not with the family. Um, but we need to be looking at what can we be doing as a nation to ensure that more kids are able to stay at home. And most of what happens in child removal is a response to poverty, is a response to intergenerational trauma, and there are things that can be put in place to help support these families so that this doesn't have to happen. And that's not happening across the board and hasn't been happening for a long time. A lot of money is pulled out of family support services. And these are the conversations we need to be talking about and need to be looking at very in depth and actually putting some pressure back onto government to say, what can we do to improve the stats? Yet, like I said, the same story for over 12 years. And within that period, the numbers have been skyrocketing. Because on the face of it, it just looks like the government has repackaged the stolen generation policy into more palatable um, for, for like their own moral conscious. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in so many issues, what we talk about was that you know, in my father's generation, the racism was overt. In my generation, it's covert. Um, but it's still largely the same things that are happening or drastically increase. And when we're talking about incarceration, um, you know, juvenile justice detention and out of home care, those numbers have absolutely gone through the roof since the time when we acknowledge it as a part of an overt racist approach. Nothing's happened to actually reduce it and none of the racism has actually stopped. We just don't name it in the way that we used to. That's the only thing that's changed. Because like a lot of times, this, I think you publish your story um, on the, either the eve on the day of uh, the sorry apology from Kevin Rudd. Do you think, do you think that was because I'm pretty sure on during that time or a few weeks or a few days the Northern Territory intervention happened? Um, do you think that people like that story of of oh we're better now racism is over, opposed to to really looking at the hard statistics that we just said? I think people love that story because it's so much better than the story that we're actually more racist now than a period where we recognise Australia was one of the most racist countries on earth. And so it's much easier to you know, point to these symbolic gestures and say, oh, no, we, we're much better, you know, we're moving forward. And, you know, we can point to some areas where there is phenomenal improvements. I mean, a lot of the services that exist now, you know, didn't exist a generation ago, but those services are currently under threat and facing you know, massive staff cuts, defunding, and have always been grossly under-resourced and had to work within government systems that, you know, do not empower them to work the way they need to work. So even though, you know, Aboriginal people have fought for these things to be in place, the government has consistently wound them down or undermined them since day one, and so much so that now they're actually unpacking them all together. Hi, Luke. Amina here. And um, so we're basically told that family is a basic unit of society. And so what these policies are doing is basically fracturing communities, or Indigenous communities particularly. And if we imagine the state as the head of, you know, head of the family or the patriarch, we can observe that this is actually genocidal practice. And that's, that's not used. We've been talking about it for so long. Um, 
But what is it about this insidious practice of fracturing families? Why is this particularly um, particularly insidious? Oh, it's it's hard to know how much of government bureaucracy and incompetence is you know, overtly orchestrated to be that way, and how much is just the incompetence of bureaucracy. But you know, much of what happened under the stolen generations through the Bring Them Home report, you know, twenty odd years ago was openly acknowledged as genocide by the UN Convention of Genocide. One of those definitions is removing the children from that core group. And so, yeah, any chance we're talking about of Indigenous empowerment, revitalising languages, culture, keeping communities safe, and, you know, the government, their, their three-pronged slogan of kids have to go to school, parents have to go to work, community should be safe, there's nothing that's actually happening on the ground to actually make that happen. And so, you know, there's a lot of conflicting theories varying from you know, government understand exactly what they're doing and that the end purpose is what the purpose has always been for Aboriginal people, um, genocide, quite directly. And the other is that, you know, the government is just unwilling to recognise their own role in it. They're unwilling to acknowledge their own failures. And so they double down. You know, we know full well that punitive responses are not the best measure, um, that removing kids, that locking people up are not the best measures. Yet to actually seriously change that around, there's going to need to be a conversation that says we acknowledge we've been doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, within this modern generation that considers itself so progressive, but really as a continuation of colonial expansion since day one. And I just, I don't know. And I, I, I think it does vary. I think there are some people within government who'd be very happy to see there not be any more Aboriginal people. I think there are some people who think this is the only thing that they can do and just, you know, are for some reason blind to the realities of what it obviously leads to, both... Yeah, the numbers are there. They're, they're unquestionable that the government responses for what they claim to be their desired outcomes are not working are, and, in fact, moving the complete opposite direction. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d different nationalities and, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line. And over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. And uh, also this week, unfortunately, some horrible Islamophobic things have happened. Uh, something very sad, like particularly for me, because I live so close to um, to Preston. Preston Mosque was uh, was vandalized and. Uh, 
Qurans were thrown to the ground, ripped apart, windows were broken, spray paint was sprayed all around um, the masjid and uh, basically something, a place where people go to only for community and worship and spirituality was turned into basically a rubbish bin. Uh, and I, I guess like always we, we usually think of things like this, to, we, we go, oh, it's happens like in regional you know like regional victoria or regional australia oh, we don't need to worry about it we're living in metropolitan melbourne and where the progressive people live and and all that kind of thing and, and you just think about it preston isn't too far away from the city i was gonna say preston is very multicultural as well so it's happened in a in a, a diverse part of melbourne which yeah is where, where a lot of muslims live yes yeah and like what was kind of what kind of scared me because I I know there was um, some 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 people from the Somali community fundraising for a new mosque like a like a new center where Somali is can can I don't know congregate in terms of community and and all that kind of stuff and now like, how how are you gonna feel making a new center in in Preston when they just the, the, uh, the existing one and like this is like not hundred dollar two hundred dollar kind of like repairs this is gonna cost thousands heard, upon thousands of like, ten, tens of thousands two hundred thousand yeah. wow. Um, How are they going to, like, this is just... Well, I hope someone sets up a fundraiser for them because... I said I hope someone sets up a fundraiser for them because um, they deserve it, I guess. It's a um, good chance to show some community. I guess this is this is the environment we live in, though. Like, we, we have political leaders that think it's okay to to bomb and invade Muslim countries at the drop of a hat and, and they do so under the pretext that Muslim culture is intrinsically inferior. So how are we, why are we surprised when that manifests in violence against Muslims? Exactly. And I think that's the thing that people need to understand is that there is a correlation between foreign policy and domestic policy. So when you're fear-mongering in order to harness support for um, foreign invasions overseas, you're also allowing and brewing hatred Domestically, and this is a direct, mm. a direct consequence mm. of that. And uh, I just thought I'd mention that, and uh, we'll move on to some more racism. Uh, really, there's uh, fair enough. Oh, well, there's oh. always too much. <laughs> <laughs> How do you want to look at it? Uh, well, like uh, going, uh, you know, <laughs> you think you thought things couldn't get stranger, um, but well, clearly you haven't heard Rebel William, uh, Wilson, Rebel Wilson's BAFTA speech seemed. Uh, well, to Are be, you going to play it now? Oh, yeah, Excellent. yes. Because oh, I haven't heard it yet. Oh, <laughs> she seemed to take an affront to the suggestion of diversity in film uh, and uh, making a slight joke about the Oscars So White campaign. Hmm. I have never been invited to the Oscars because, <laughs> as you know, they are racist. <laughs> the BAFTAs have diverse members. And that's what we all want to see in life, isn't it? <laughs> Diverse members. Yeah. Well, I don't even know what that, what like, does that mean? What is she like, talking like about? The, the thing, like at least that clip, just like I don't know what she was trying to make of it. Just like, just like oh. You know, they're so diversity is bad. It's just, and it didn't get better. It got worse. Um, she kind of talked about. Yeah, I, I can't even. Like, I'll just, I'll just play the. Yeah. One day, I hope to return here to win a BAFTA myself. I have already been practicing my transgendered face. <laughs> and now, segue to to the award of best supporting actor. 
Sorry, Idris Elba, you're making me a bit nervous. <laughs> but I'm just sociologically programmed to want chocolate on Valentine's Day. Yeah, I'm, I'm just socially, um, you know, uh, programmed to, to want chocolate on Valentine's Day. And you know, the thing is, like, beyond, like, because of all that, like, um, just, just recently, uh, Idris Elba was actually talking about diversity in film mm. uh, and, and seeing him like and the things like I'm not talking about kind of like I don't care that she made a racist joke I'm, I'm more worried that a group of white actors were just laughing at everything and ate everything she set up and then just being imagine being Idris Elba in that situation who was just mm. talking about diversity in, uh, on, on TV screens when he spoke to a group of MPs um, just over a month ago and uh, he, here's what he said to the MPs about the need for diversity. In fact, Ford Dagenham had um, more opportunity and diversity than the TV industry I was trying to break into. In a funny way, broadcasting needs a Magna Carta. We need to start doing things more fairly. It's not so much as a peace treaty, but an opportunity treaty. We need to count up what everybody has, see the lay of the land, and see, which, and see who has which careers in TV. Who makes TV? Who's allowed on TV? And when they get the opportunity, which roles do they play off and on screen? You have to ask the question, are black people normally playing petty criminals? Are women always the love interest or talking about men? Are gay people always stereotyped? Are disabled people ever seen at all? Do some people have their careers taken away on a whim? Is their talent unfairly ignored? And like I think I think that discussion needs to be had, and and I'm, and just imagine sitting in a room where you had this serious discussion, mm-hmm. meeting with political people like politicians and what have you, uh, and a few weeks ago, a few weeks later, you're going to the Baftas um, to hopefully maybe win an award, um, to be acknowledged by your colleagues, and a group of them laughing about the idea of diversity. Yeah, and your identity becomes a punchline. Yeah, basically, like then, literally, like that—that's it. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm socially programmed to like. Uh, what was it chocolate, chocolate on Valentine's Day? This like, is like that. What was that joke or joke that that DJ put on Australian DJ put on oh, his the, Twitter the or Instagram? The, and I'm the uh, I'm the creamy I'm the, filling between two chocolate biscuits. Like, it's just, you know, like the thing. The thing is, the thing is just basically making a punchline, as you said, of of this person, of, of Idris Elba's identity, um, making a punchline of uh, Ice Cube and Kevin Hart. And it was just, like, these things, like, you'd, you'd think that you just really just stop for a moment and think about why are you doing this? Yeah. Because it's white supremacy in action. White supremacy and privilege breeds it itself, unthinkingly. It's one, you know, we're, they're not making this joke in a vacuum. They're not making it in a world or a society where we're all treated equally and we have equal opportunity. They're, they're doing it in a, in a, you know, Rebel Wilson made that joke in an environment where 20 <laughs> actors in every category, 20 out of 20 are white and... These are these are meant to celebrate all films across the spectrum. So when 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 people of color can be excluded to that extent, and then you're making a joke of it, and that's why it doesn't work the other way. You know, making a joke about a white person is just it's not the same thing because my joke is not going to affect your privilege. It's well, not gonna, it's, yeah. well, basically the thing about like system like um, talking about so making a joke about black people being cr- uh, criminals. 
um, and, and and comparing it to saying, oh, white people can't dance. It's like okay. one one thing is like like. Like you're indigenous. not, you're not going to go yeah. to dance jail. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. You're not yeah, going to yeah. be thrown in jail for thirty years. Exactly. So, like. <laughs> I'm banning all rap this year at the awards. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love hip hop. Obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay. Hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Yeah, I got on my overalls. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to send an Uber for you right now. Yeah, come on, be outside. So moving on to the feature... There's no question of the profitability of the fitness industry. What seems relatively positive and marketed as necessary for overall wellness, however, is hardly viewed critically across the board. Given the system our world largely operates by, fitness is not simply a lifestyle. It's reflective of an overarching ideology that has built an industry in its surrounds to commodify this. And by conflating bodies to social meetings and centralizing and marketing what fit, active, non-moving, ordinary bodies should look like, we witness a propaganda of body idealism, which includes racialized expectations, as well as proliferating harmful, even appropriative associations. So through capitalistic endeavors, furthered by white supremacy and class, we are fed to believe that the ideal body on average is lean, which which connotes health and wellness. And to be larger than lean is to be unhealthy, lazy, and all all other social meanings imbued to it. And such meanings are then used to justify fat shaming, for instance. However, for the sake of constraining the breadth of this area, we'll be focusing on the appropriation and commercialization of yoga to demonstrate and further um, explore this. It is also by no means the only practice of meditation and movement to be quantified and orientalized by the white gaze. But it's just for the sake of reducing the breadth. So yoga, for listeners who are unaware, um, it originates from South Asia. And from a religious-speaking sort of perspective, um, it originates from Hindu practice dating thousands thousands of years. Along with the Kama Sutra, it was banned by British colonizers for being deviant and devilish and for being uncivilized. And by fracturing and diminishing the practice for several hundred years, the struggle to keep these cultural practices has since continued. Fast forward to the present day, where the practice of yoga is now associated with white skinny women who just want to be well. Take note, this critique isn't a personal one. It is a systemic critique of a historical and ongoing legacy. As one can be expected with the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, yoga is heavily commodified and divorced from South Asian Hindu authorship. And so now we see things like, you know, yoga mats, um, yoga pants, um, none of which makes sense. One of the things that is most insidious to me is the idea of the yoga body because it 
proliferates white supremacy's idea of the ideal body. So even though, for example, there is a way to be subversive in um, practicing yoga as a South Asian Hindu person, um, you can have these classes and you can still be in some kind of authorship. You can still, you know, market your products and still be in some kind of authorship. The idea of proliferating this this body idealism is particularly, um, can only be applied to white supremacy. There's no way you can take that back. That's a very harmful um, thing that's that keeps getting but, like, but also like, um, heard around. But if, also, if, if, if I talk to anyone, if I go onto the street and ask them, what do you think and what do you see when I say yoga? They will think blonde, white woman. That's right. the immediate image. Like even me, like right now, like I get that image in my head. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just like, because in everything, in popular culture, from from every single thing, yoga is seen as this trendy, cool, hippie kind of thing. You can, and wealthy too. Yeah, wealthy. And, it's, it, and it becomes classes in that sense. And mm. the people who actually originate from where yoga have begun unable to take these yoga classes mm-hmm. and also maybe they, maybe they didn't even want to take these yoga classes to begin with anyway right and also when you talk about you know those classes are very expensive and they're going to the pockets of like white people who can't pronounce or even do things right so for example one of my friends i think she went to a yoga class headed by this white woman and she played the quran as some kind of like relaxation mantra music or something and it's, do you know what they do like i feel like um so I feel like I can I can imagine a yoga a yoga session. So a yoga session for me is so white woman with dreadlocks. Um, yeah, obviously, she needs her dreadlocks. Um, playing like maybe even playing the Quran uh, or, or some sort of obscure Arabic sounding um, song, <laughs> and then she's just you know just saying let's let's all do you remember Does everyone remember that yoga ad? Where um, this person was was selling kind of like I think it was I can't remember the product the yoga the, the yogurt product but he was saying um and and having some yogurt oh yeah oh, yeah I do right. remember that and and I can imagine her doing the exact same thing but just minus the yogurt yeah and, look, and <laughs> I mean some of them their heart is in the right place and I'll con- I confess I've been doing yoga since two thousand and one and I I I have a teacher certification as well I don't I don't teach but I I've done the training some of it um it's a hard thing for me when it comes to yoga and and the the appropriation and colonization of it well a i'm not indian so i can't speak any sort of authority um but i do know from what i've read into it that you know yogis in in india the the idea was to spread it as far and wide as possible because they felt that all of humankind needs it but of course that's true but it needs it in a certain way like it's become and i see this and just even in the last few years has become a bigger and bigger problem it has become almost completely divorced from its spiritual and i don't necessarily mean only religious that you have to be Hindu but this spiritual this idea of reconnecting humans to each other and to the planet around them Um, because that's what a lot of yoga is about you know you have these poses that are named after animals and trees and the whole idea is to remember that we we're not actually completely separate beings that our our destinies are and fate you know and, and our lives are interconnected and we can hurt each other and hurt ourselves by hurting others which is a great message and that's sort of the spirituality of a lot of it but it has become about the physical because um, that's and the ego which is the western way the world and, and we're taught to be competitive so everyone wants to do the poses and everyone wants to you know be the best handstand and this and and it's become more and more 
um, as it goes along. And I know there's a new <laughs> there's a new studio opening up in Sydney, and and they're advertising. I saw the advertisement on Facebook, and it said tone, tighten, enlighten. And I'm like, well, no, if you're enlightened, you wouldn't care about the toning and the tightening. Like, it's not, it doesn't work that way. Like, I think it was done in chronological order. Is uh, that you have to tone, tighten, and then you can get enlightened? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, when you do, and this is something that I'm really upset about with a lot of the yoga schools out there. They'll, they'll say, and they'll, they'll admit, oh, look, you know, it's not about getting the great body and being great, attractive and beautiful. And it's about becoming a better person. It's like, well, then why do you always have women in, you know, very attractive blonde women, white women, doing yoga in a bikini at the beach. That's the image you're projecting. And, you know, the yoga journals are all, magazines are guilty of that as well. You can't sort of say one thing and then do the other. If you're going to, if you're saying that yoga is for everybody, then you it has to be for everybody. You can't make it aspirational because then you're going to get those people that fit that bill, that can, you know, pump money into it. And that's the other thing. Yoga is way too expensive, most mostly. Um doesn't need to be that expensive um but you know at the very least they should like give you the mats and towels for free and not have to hire them but um sorry i'm, I'm going off on no, a, no, a bit. <laughs> but even like what you're saying right um it's this image that they present and you yes. have this idea that you can't do yoga because you're not um as thin as a stick or whatever and, and i remember seeing this video of this this black woman who is um who is who's is, who is, is bigger than than the idea mm. of the yoga master person, whatever, but she can do yoga like I've wow. seen. I think I've seen the one yeah. you mean. And, and you know, like, she can do poses. I I can't do. Like, so it's not yeah, really about yeah. necessarily body. It's more about just like you know your own body's flexibility and you're able to exactly in, in mastering yoga as it goes. Exactly, and I think this idea that's particular that's also insidious is in order to be fit or what we imagine as fit is a particular body. You know, like I have friends who are lean and they can't touch their toes, you know, for any mean yeah. something like that. They can't run, you know, a mile or something like that. Whereas I know someone who's bigger who can and they can do it faster. And we have to like decolonize the way we imagine our bodies and the way we move. And I think that's one way to kind of like subvert that um that idea. Definitely. Uh and I think we're almost about done here. Uh, thanks. Uh, didn't get to talk about Beyonce's video. Oh, well, like, uh, <laughs> oh. well, we can do that. I'll just throw it in. You, oh, guys, yeah, you guys do it next week. We can do it next week. Yeah, we can do it. Oh, and SNL Oh, that was just amazing. Oh. I, I just loved. Do you know the 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 video of um? So so the woman next to so she, this white woman was freaking out because oh my god, Beyonce's black, and then this the other woman's <laughs> right there and says. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm black so too. Mine. So, well, you, you know, and then just freaking out. Yeah. I just <laughs> love when they're like, maybe this isn't for us, and, then, and she's like, but usually everything is. So it's like, uh, oh, I loved it. They really captured. So that's a good yeah. way that white people can talk about race. Like, yes. you know, they're lampooning themselves. They're not pretending right. to know what that video means for black people. Because it's up to black people to to, to, to yeah. talk about that, but they can lampoon themselves and say, "Well, this is why that's we're all perfect. freaking out because mm-hmm. we're so used to everything being about us." So yeah. that's a great way just to go back that that how white people can talk. To and just on issues. the whole Beyonce thing, I think Colette, you know, the jewelry store, I think they released like a poster or something that they're going to have a collection 
inspired by Beyonce's formation look and it's just like mm. that's really not for you it's that's not for me either that's not for us well, yeah. what, what is Colette? Um, is Colette it? is like a jewelry store it's uh, uh, I was gonna... started by you know a white woman and her daughter in northern Sydney oh, I, I, I wish it was like a makeup <laughs> store because I would have just said that they probably wouldn't have Beyonce's shade um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but like it wasn't yeah. and, so and the thing work. is like on the poster itself it wasn't even like a black woman it was a white woman Mm. doing like the Beyonce's poses and it was like this is completely missed the point well, we're, <laughs> we're living in a show yeah. recentering themselves yeah. Yeah. it's just uh, it's impossible for them not to it's like it's, it's like it's, it's oh, in their totally. DNA now <laughs> oh. well okay. uh, thank you for coming on the show again oh, Ruby it's it was been my a pleasure. pleasure it was a lot of fun thanks for having me it's alright uh, and everyone, if you're if you're a first-time listener or just managed to find the podcast, you can find us on iTunes by searching in Racecard. You can find us on Acast, searching in Racecard as well. You can find us um, on Twitter at the Racecard. You can find us on Facebook forward slash Facebook.com forward slash Racecard Show. Uh, and also, you can find us on our new and uh, shiny website racecardpodcast.com where you can find all the information about the show and yeah so thank you for listening and this is me saying goodbye thank you for listening hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Bye, thank you. 